Welcome to The CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, the faculty members associated with the Madrasa Discourses Project discuss the program's unique efforts to engage Madrasa scholars from India and Pakistan in conversations about religion, society, and epistemology. Joshua Lupo, Madrasa Discourses Classroom Coordinator, moderates a conversation that includes Ibrahim Musa, Notre Dame Professor of Islamic Studies and the primary investigator for Madrasa Discourses, Mahan Mirza, Madrasa Discourses Advisor and the Executive Director of the Ansari Institute for Global Engagement with Religion at Notre Dame, Waris Mazhari, faculty member in India, and Amar Khan Nasir, faculty member in Pakistan. The Madrasa Discourses Project is part of the Contending Modernities Initiative. We hope you enjoy the conversation. This past summer, the Madrasa Discourses program held its first summer intensives in Pakistan and India. Madrasa Discourses, with the support of the John Templeton Foundation, trains recent graduates of madrasas or Muslim religious seminaries in new developments in science, theology, and philosophy. In both Islamabad, Pakistan, and in New Delhi, India, a large cross-spectrum of religious leaders, public intellectuals, and journalists had the opportunity to learn about some of the goals of the program, along with some of the successes that three years of online instruction from the University of Notre Dame, as well as three weeks of intensive in-person workshops, has produced. During the intensives, participants in the program shared and refined their research and experiences in the program. In Islamabad, the Council for Islamic Ideology hosted the public program, and in New Delhi, our host was Jamia Millia Islamia University. The introduction of this program to the public, which included several hundred attendees in India and Pakistan, garnered a great deal of public interest. There was also the expected social media debates concerning the role of modern science, philosophy, and humanistic inquiry in the context of Islamic theology. Needless to say, while many people welcomed the conversation about Islamic theology, there were also some critics. I am Josh Lupo, the coordinator for Madrasa Discourses. I also write and edit the Continuing Modernities blog, housed in the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Also joining me today is the primary investigator for the project, Dr. Ibrahim Musa, professor of Islamic studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keough School for Global Affairs. Welcome, Dr. Musa. Thank you, Dr. Josh. I'm also joined by Dr. Mahan Mirza, who is currently the executive director of the Ansari Institute, but formerly served as the lead faculty for the Madrasa Discourses Project. Welcome, Dr. Mirza. Thanks, Josh. All three of us had the opportunity to take part in these intensives last summer. Present remotely with us today are also Dr. Amar Khan Nasser, who is professor at Al Sharia Academy in Gujranwala, Pakistan. Welcome, Dr. Amar. Thank you, Dr. Josh. And we also have Dr. Waris Mazari, who is Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at Jamia Hamdar University in New Delhi, India. Welcome, Dr. Waris. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Josh. They also serve as faculty members on the project and coordinated many of the activities for our recent in-country summer intensives. The goal of the Madrasa Discourses program, as we will explore in our conversation today, is not to impose a particular understanding of the world onto Muslims living in South Asia. Rather, the goal of this program is to draw on resources within Islam to open up the conversation on science, technology, and philosophy to historical and contemporary perspectives. By doing so, we hope to equip participants with the resources to address these questions in the present and in their own context. 
Recently, I, along with Professor Musa and Professor Mirza, had the opportunity to reflect on the program and what lessons it might have for policymakers in three short pieces published by the Kroc Institute's online journal, Peace Policy. Today, we want to have a conversation about the origins and the future of this program, and so I'll now turn to Dr. Musa to help orient us. So, Dr. Musa, why did you start this program, and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Thank you. You know, the program started on the invitation from some of the religious leaders in India and also some interest from colleagues in Pakistan about the need to educate the next generation of Muslim theologians on the subcontinent. And this invitation inquiry to me came for several years and only became possible for me to embark on this project. After I came to University of Notre Dame, one of the key people that I talked to about this many years ago was Dr. Waris Mazhari. And the idea is to ensure that the next generation of at least some Muslim theologians on the subcontinent have an awareness of the history of the Muslim tradition, of the question of change over time, but also how does Islamic theology respond to the challenges of the day from questions of democracy, human rights, to questions of science and bioethics, which requires a, a kind of furnishing of intellectual resources that they do not necessarily get in the madrasas. And so in some way, it is a, a form of a, a remedial in one sense, is remedial to what the madrasas are doing. And in another form, it's also additional to what the madrasas are doing. Hopefully, the goal is to find places and institutions that after our pilot project is completed, that there might be opportunities to propose how this could be done in institutions on the subcontinent. Thank you, Dr. Musa. I now want to turn to the other lead faculty uh, from the program. So, Dr. Mirza, how did you come to be involved in this program? Thanks, Josh. You know, I'm a regular guy from Pakistan, originally from Pakistan, now from the United States. Maybe it's not, you know, entirely appropriate to say regular guy. I grew up in a fairly privileged family and had the opportunity to come to the United States uh, for higher studies. And I came here to study engineering. And that's because people from my background had one of two choices. Either you do engineering or you do medicine. And I did engineering because I didn't want to do medicine. Didn't have a passion for it. And when I came here, I did fairly well, but I saw there was a whole new world. A world where you could study history, you could study philosophy, you could study anthropology, you could study religion and be a respectable person. At the same time, I was confronting all kinds of personal anxiety about my own identity. And I was also getting exposed to a lot of inequality globally and within societies, but also globally. And I turned to religion. I turned to religion for answers and I turned to religion for solutions. And so that brought me to Islam, to Islamic movements in the world, Islamic movements in Pakistan, and I switched to the study of religion. And so I've been involved in this ever since, trying to find my way through academia first as to how religion can be relevant in the modern world. And prior to coming to Notre Dame, I was at Zaytuna College, helping them establish a Muslim liberal arts college and developing a curriculum whereby young Muslims, largely Muslim students in the United States can get acquainted with their tradition and bring it into conversation with the cultural currents of our time. So I was over there and I reached out to Professor Musa, who I knew was starting this project. And he said, Mahan, I have this very interesting thing. And I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be in dialogue with actual scholars in the Muslim world 
around contemporary challenges confronting Islamic thought. And when the position opened up, I put my name forward and was very privileged to have the opportunity to work with Professor Musa on some of these questions that I had been thinking about most of my adult life. Thank you, Dr. Mirza. I'd like to now turn to our colleagues in India and Pakistan and have them tell us a little bit how they became involved in the program. So why don't we start with Dr. Amar in, in Pakistan. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with Madrasa Discourses. In the first place, it was a personal relationship with Dr. Ibrahim Musa, to whom I had been introduced by Dr. Varis Mazari. And later on, he was kind enough to invite me to his place when he was at the Duke University. At the same time, there was curiosity to learn about what this program has to offer to people trained in madrasa education. So as we all got involved in the project, I came to realize that it was much bigger than I had initially thought. It not only provides a platform for the young Muslim theologians to have a conversation with multiple modern academic disciplines such as philosophy, science, and history, But more crucially, it invites them to reappraise what they have studied about their own theological tradition in a very critical and instructive way. And now, as we are three years into this project, I see this project as a unique and arguably the most serious effort of reviving the intellectual tradition from within the madrasa circles. Well, thank you, Dr. Amar. I'd now like to turn to Dr. Varis in New Delhi, India, and have him reflect a little bit on on how he came to be involved in this program. Actually, I met several times Professor Ibrahim Musa in India and USA. I always felt that he's so much interested in initiating a project for Madrasa graduates in order to enhance their academic skills. Being an editor of Tarjumane Darul Ulum Deoban, an Urdu uh, journal, which is issued from Darul Deoban Old Boys Association, Delhi, I was fully aware of the weakness and potentialities of Madrasa graduates. And I had been writing about it. That is why I appreciated this idea of Professor Musa. We kept discussing it for several years. So when in 2016 the program started, I was quite happy to to be part of this program. I'd like to now turn to the recent articles that we published in the Peace Policy Journal that is housed at the Kroc Institute. So Dr. Musa and Dr. Mirza, in both your articles, you suggest that the elicitive approach that Madrasa Discourses takes to Islamic thought is what makes it unique. I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about the pedagogical approach you have taken in the classroom and and what you hope to achieve with it. So let's start with Dr. Musa. Thank you. The elicitive approach is an approach in peace studies by a foremost uh, peace studies scholar, John Dedrack, who talks about that if you want to work with communities, you start from their own resources to things that are internal to them, to things that they culturally and philosophically understand, and these things are organic to them. And it was it was a happy coincidence that Lederach's philosophy is uh, deeply entrenched in the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies as a peace studies mechanism, and the idea that we thought about that 
we want to engage communities in South Asia, people interested in Islamic theology, who are deeply suspicious of knowledge from outside their tradition. So how do we start that conversation? So Lederach gave us the wording, but the idea was already indigenous in many ways to the way in which me and my colleagues were trying to formulate this thing. In other words, theologians in the madrasas think about the questions of the world and think about the question of existence. But they might not be using the language of modern science and modern philosophy. They might be using an older philosophy. There are other kinds of categories. So we use those categories and those terms as a starting point, as a conversation. One, to build trust. And second, to build understanding that we're building the understanding based on their experiences and their history and their culture. And then you can expand those conversations in different directions. That's very well put. I'm not sure what I can add. Maybe what I'll say is, Zoom out a little bit. I mean, think about the context within which this whole program is taking place. It's a context of conflict, civilizational conflict, clash of civilizations, Islam versus the West. And these are how these things are typically framed. And when we approach each other from within that framework, the outcomes that one desires is one of two outcomes. Either I want to make the other one more like me, or the other one needs to be annihilated. This kind of binary. And we wanted to move away from this kind of binary. And the elicitive approach helps us do that because it's a more human approach. And it presumes from the outset that the other has something of value. That there is something of value that can be brought into the conversation from which I can learn. Just like I feel I have something of value that the other can learn. And that completely changes the whole framework of the conversation, the tenor of the relationships that are built within the program, and consequently the kinds of intellectual exchange that is generated is of a very different kind. And this is something that is unique to this program. There are a few other programs that are working along similar lines and we feel is the best way to move towards a planet in which people with differences can live in harmony. I think one of the issues that Dr. Mahan raises is this question of civilizational question. And it's both a problem and sometimes not really a problem. It's, you know, it depends how we do it. But the biggest question is the power imbalance in knowledge, right? Whoever has power determines what the outcomes are and the powerless often feels that they are being subjected to the narratives and to the shape of the powerful. And Western knowledge through science, humanities, institutions, politics and so on dominate and set the agenda for the rest of the world. And Madrasa communities are fully aware of this power imbalance and fully aware that they can also be made subordinate to this and therefore there's a great deal of hesitation there's also a realistic realization that we need this knowledge so it's an ambivalence that is there coming in from one that people want to have control over their lives therefore the elusive approach is a way in which we try to allay their fears but also make them aware that there are going to be challenges running ahead that when you take on new knowledge it results in change and change that you might not be able to control it's not that they can control changes even without madrasa discourses. Changes taking place in India and Pakistan, irrespective of what they do 
in economics and culture are already taking place. Yeah, and I know addressing the power imbalance has been important to this program from the beginning. So I think it would be helpful to also hear from Dr. Varis and Dr. Amar about how you think about the solicitive approach, what the advantages of it are from your perspective. Actually, I was telling that our method is that to provoke our Madrasah graduates to think and find their answer for the question. We don't want to give them ready-made question, ready-made answer. Only we have to provoke them to find answer on their own way. So, because if we give them a ready-made answer, we fear they will stop thinking. So, our method is that we have to raise questions in their mind. Dr. Amar, do you want to add to that about the pedagogical approach of madrasa discourses? Yeah, I think Dr. Ibrahim has very importantly pointed out that understanding the question of political power is very crucial. And what we try to do in this project is to bring the madrasa scholars into conversation with all the debates that are going on within the Western Academy. And also we expose them to similar debates that took place in the Islamic tradition. And all this discussion obviously broadens their vision and deepens their understanding of worldly affairs and how communities in different civilizational contexts can shape their positions. This is important, very important. Thank you, Dr. Amar. So then it might be helpful now to think more about what, in the U.S. context, let's start there, what U.S. policymakers might take from such an approach. How can we take this elicitive approach that is practiced in the classroom and then begin to think more broadly about what impacts it can have on U.S. policymaking? Professor Musa has excellent recommendations in his book, What is a Madrasa? And he's even given us some language that policymakers, leaders can use when they begin the exchange with each other. And it follows the same philosophy. Look, we're dealing with great civilizations. When the United States engages with the Muslim world, the first thing that I think we have to keep in mind is we're not dealing with barbarians. We're not dealing with people who are ignorant. We're dealing with an extremely sophisticated culture and an extremely sophisticated intellectual tradition. And so given that, our posture should be that there are things that we can learn from each other. There are things that we may not know. And fine, people are confronting different material conditions. And that in large part determines how we may see that, you know, they're living their lives. But that doesn't mean that they're any less. And so once you begin to establish a human connection, that is the foundation on which policy should be built. Once you begin the foundation on dehumanization, then... All policy that flows from that is going to be misdirected and it's going to be destructive, not constructive. Policymakers in the West in particular, but also in the East, only give attention to madrasas when their own kind of political power is impacted or they want to start a war in Afghanistan or in, uh, in Iraq or there are issues of political violence in different places then madrasas become the center of attention, okay? There's no attention to madrasas before that, and there's this allegation that madrasas are involved in radicalism, right? And that has been refuted by empirical studies. There might be a few individual madrasas that are connected to certain networks. 
So the question is, you know, the education of policymakers is obviously a big challenge to make them understand that you cannot come to your adversaries or people that you deem as adversaries at the time of crisis. You need to establish good relations before that and you need to have goodwill. And so I think overall, my advice to all policymakers in the West and in the East is you need to keep good relations with this kind of demographic of people that are substantial, that play an important role in the question of religion. You need to keep open dialogue with them. And I think, as Dr. Misa said, you need to learn from them and what their world is. If you don't understand what their world is, you're going to have miscommunication. And largely has been miscommunication about different communities for a long time. And this ignorance obviously creates suspicion and it creates malevolence of a variety of kinds. So I wonder if our colleagues in India Pakistan would want to weigh in on this matter. What do you imagine the impact of madrasa discourses on wider Pakistani or Indian society being? I mean, for whom is it relevant? Is it relevant for policymakers or other actors in society? As for talking about how policymakers could benefit from this Madrasa Discourse project. Actually, Madrasas play a vital role in formulation of political and social thinking. And Madrasa graduates are guiding force for Muslim societies in South Asia. That is why it has always been need of the time to make new generation of Madrasa graduates aware of the contemporary theological challenges so that they can play their expected role and to represent Islam as a religion in more constructive way in a multicultural society like India. This program, the Madrasa Discourses Project, not only will make policymakers, Madrasa graduates beneficial and accessible for the Indian policymakers, but it will also help them in fighting against narrow-mindedness and extremism. Thank you, Dr. Vars. Dr. Amar, uh, what are your thoughts on the effects of madrasa discourses on wider society and policymakers? The scope of this project is uh, much broader than what concerns the political policymakers, whether in the U.S. or in Pakistan or in India. One thing that they can learn from this project is that the phenomenon of uh, religious extremism is not primarily a political problem and that its civilizational and intellectual dimensions cannot be overlooked. More specifically, uh, it cannot be dealt with effectively through the exertion of political pressure from the outside. I think only a robust intellectual environment within the community can come up with convincing and authentic answers to the kind of challenges that different extremist narratives currently pose. So I think this is one of the most important lessons they can learn. So one thing that we learned during our time in India and Pakistan this past summer is that many people are embracing this project, aren't excited about what Madrasa Discourses is doing, but there's also been some resistance to the program. I want all our panelists to maybe reflect for a moment on some of the resistances that they have encountered in working on this project and, and perhaps what they've learned from those and whether or not it changes their approach. Uh, let's start with Dr. Musa. What resistances have you come up against? Well, the resistance is what we saw on social media and, and criticisms. I mean, the ones that I picked up were two. One was a columnist in Pakistan writing that 
why do you spend all this money on these clerics? These funds that the John Templeton Foundation is giving should be spent more beneficially at universities. So it was kind of a backhanded insult to the religious community of Pakistan or the subcontinent. The other complaint was a certain kind of misunderstanding that the program is promoting religious pluralism. And by religious pluralism, the definition was that Islam is no longer the true religion, that the truth lies in this multiplicity, and which is a very false definition of what pluralism is. So I think the general question or the challenge still is one of building trust. And anything that comes from the West, even though the primary investigator is a former madrasa student like myself and our partners all over are people of Islamic background, that still does not reduce the trust level. Now, this is a this is a problem and maybe is the the problem within communities that possibly we are powerless to solve. But once they engage in a conversation, they can see the benefits of these things and then they say this is something that we want to own. So our goal has always been that this Madrasa project doesn't belong to the University of Notre Dame or to any of the colleagues in the program. This belongs to you. This is your legacy. This is your tradition. All we're trying to do is investing our experiences that we've had as people from this tradition and what we have learned and what the constructive dimension of this tradition could be to deal with contemporary challenges. You know, we're just thinking of the word resistance. That's mostly resistance, I think, has come from outside the program. Within the program, I don't think there's been any resistance. It's actually been remarkable, the level of engagement those who participate in the program have demonstrated. And the focus has been on complexity. So there is a tendency to think in simplistic terms about religious thought, about creed, about ethics, legal formulations within the tradition. It's formulaic. And what we try and do in the program is we try and nuance that. So we try to give a different understanding of tradition as not a series of answers that are transmitted from generation to generation, but as an intellectual conversation that takes place in history around contested set of ideas, answers to questions that are deeply contested across different schools of thought and across geographic centers. So I wouldn't say that there's resistance, but it takes some time for that to settle in, to move away from a simplicity to a complex approach to the tradition. And once that happens, immediately something remarkable happens within the group, which is they start to worry about how are we going to take this outside the circle? No one was going to listen to us. People are going to cast aspersions. And so I remember very early on in the program, maybe it was even the first year or just at the start of the second year, the conversation switched from actual content to sociology of how we're going to deal with the rest of society, given this engagement that we've had, this kind of learning that we've experienced, how are we going to take it forward without people thinking negatively of us? And I think that's the biggest challenge because when you have so much sectarianism, when there's so much at stake for people in this conversation, people who have power and exercise power other communities, that when you begin to unsettle that, you get pushback and there's deep suspicion. And there's also suspicion because we're in the United States. What does America want to do with us? Where's the money coming from? 
was this Catholic university? They all want to, you know, make us Catholic or, you know, you get these kinds of undertones. And that is, I think, where we the, the conversation really needs to be managed. And the way that we have done this is, look, you're the owners of this knowledge. If you don't like it, don't participate in the conversation. No one's forcing you. But if you're enjoying this and you think it's meaningful and it's relevant, you have to own it. And you have to figure out how in wisely, not you know in rash ways, but with prudence, you're going to take this conversation forward in your own context. And that is something that you know our colleagues have been working on, and that's the task that they have for them in the future. Can you give us some examples of the things that students are learning in Madrasa discourses, how these things might affect wider issues in society. So can you give us some examples of, of things that students are learning that are having this kind of effect? The way this project is affecting the general environment is that it has introduced or it has exposed the general community to the new questions, to new perspectives that they were unfamiliar with before they knew about the discussions that are taking place in the madrasa discourses. So a very good number of serious and engaged young scholars, they are they now appreciate and they are now willing to engage the question that we raise in this project. Because we have some public meetings as well, a few websites on which our participants regularly make contributions and they, they write reports on our summer and winter intensives and Many of them are active users of social media, so they raise or they convey the questions or the complexities that they come across in their personal capacity to the general community. So I think the the project and its participants and the debates that we are provoking, they are shaping in a very constructive way the thinking of the community. That is my observation. And I am very hopeful that it will contribute in a constructive way, inshallah. And Dr. Varis, are there examples you can think of of topics or uh, things that students are interested in that are having an impact on wider society in New Delhi and beyond? Actually, one section of Madrasa scholars always opposes every initiative, every project whose source is any Western country, especially USA. They show their doubts and always they try to convince people that there are some hidden hand working behind that, so and so on. So that is why we, since the beginning, we face difficulties and criticism in starting and developing this program. And still we are facing that. But from the last three years of experiences, we learned that if we share the real objectives of this program to serious people, they just not appreciate us, but also come to help us. That is why every alternate day, we receive many mails and phone calls. They ask to be part of this project. Also, many madarsa scholars and those who are responsive, madarsa managers, they ask me how to use the syllabus and the learning materials how could we provide them and they, they could use these uh, materials? That is why we believe that we should not really care about the criticism. Rather, we should focus on our work. And I am pretty sure that when such people know the nature and the result of our works, they will become silent, inshallah. So 
in last July in the summer program, there was so much noise in social media. People tried to tarnish our image. But you know, now that's why scholars joined our program in, in our new cohort. We have very brilliant minds. So they were not successful in their campaign against us. And we hope that in future, inshallah, their doubt will be removed from their mind. You know, one of the things that we experience is that if you go and address communities who are deeply doubtful of Western policies and you say gender, human rights, that's immediately the giveaway. That's how Western policymakers address these issues. You need to have gender equality, you need to have democracy, and you need to have human rights the way we think about it. And that is a, the recipe for failure because people have different understandings of what is the meaning of relationship between sexes, what is the status, culturally embedded things on which there could be a conversation, but you don't go on these conversations head on. So what we do in our project is, for instance, we talk about the question of science. Science will show that there's no difference in the brain size of men and women. Science begins to tell us what are the facts of the world how human beings care for each other, what is the questions of human dignity and so on. And then our participants themselves get to this answer. But listen, the way we've been thinking in Islamic law about the status of women, the way we've been thinking about the issues, doesn't sound right. They come themselves to those questions and then they find the answers. So I think the, the, the key question is equipping these individuals with the kind of resources to ask the questions in a sound manner and then to find the answers that will not be immediate but become answers that they can own and they will be able to deal with their communities in a constructive manner. Some of these challenges, for instance, the place of evolution, for instance, in Muslim theology, or you know, the place of the place of reason and revelation. It's an ongoing debate. Okay. And are these issues so far apart? Is what Revelation said in the 7th century, does that still remain the same or does reason add to that understanding of what Revelation has said and provide for a new position in the 21st century? How do you deal with, you know, organ transplantation and body parts and gene, uh, you know, gene therapies or genetic-based therapies? Does that change the human person or does that, uh, you know, create enhancements that are acceptable or are these unacceptable enhancements? These are some of the day-to-day -day questions. But I think the more fundamental questions are that how do religious communities retrieve their sense of dignity and become part of cultures and whose voices can be heard loudly around the world? So the main issue, one, two, three, the main issue is how to ensure that religious leaders and thought leaders begin to articulate Islam with a strong dose of concern for human dignity. And they can then raise their voices in the world community as meaningful participants in their own countries, but also around the world, rather than being lectured to by outside voices how they should conduct themselves. So in, in another way, this project is an empowerment project for the voices of religious and theological leadership in Muslim communities. To end, let's reflect a little bit about the future of this program. Dr. Musa, where do you see the program going in the next few years, and, and what do you hope for it? 
I'm hoping that we will be able to engage more participants from the subcontinent. We hope to continue this. Uh, there's also a possibility of finding, you know, other locales in the world where people will be interested in, so we can create a kind of a intercultural, intercivilizational conversations from people in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, along similar kinds of questions to create a kind of a network of, of global communication on this very vital topic, because I think we've merely scratched the surface here by what we did. So I think uh, the, the opportunities are many. I'm looking forward to other experiences with uh, different, in different settings. Dr. Mirza, what do you hope for this program? What I hope for is, this is like I framed earlier, you know, if you think of it in big picture terms of an inter-civilizational encounter, or even intra-civilizational within Islam, you know, talking about different interpretations of Islam. These kinds of encounters can be constructive and they can be destructive. And that's not just true for Islam. Look at the United States. We have the red states and the blue states. We've been talking about that for the past couple of decades. And this is a conversation America is having within itself. And it can go one of two ways. And so really the success of this project in my mind and in the future, it will be successful if we can increase our capacity for disagreement with each other. And I think this is something that the program is really fostering. I'll give you an example. One of the things we do in the project is we take undergraduate students from Notre Dame to these summer intensives, and we've also done that now for a winter intensive. And the students overhear the conversation that madrasa participants are having, and then we involve them in small group dialogue. We give them different questions. And we've done that on site, and we also did that for one year from long distance. And we give them interesting questions, ethical questions like on ectogenesis, or which is the growth of a human embryo outside a human womb, in an artificial womb. It's all kinds of social implications from new technologies. And uh, one of the conversations we encouraged amongst the participants, I remember at the first intensive, was all of our Notre Dame undergraduate students were female. And most of our madrasa participants were male. And so we had them sit in, in small circles, and the question we posed was, as a non-Muslim female, I feel I can flourish under the Sharia. Yes, no, or why? <laughs> and by this time, they had built up uh, quite a few friendships. And so all the, all the Notre Dame students are very comfortable saying, no, thank you. I'm fine the way I am. And all these madrasa participants were like, well, this is why it's good for you. And sure, you can't have a, such a complex conversation in a short amount of time. But that was part of what we wanted to demonstrate is to our mothers and participants that the conversation is far more complex than we sometimes formulaically put forward. And the outcome of this was they both loved each other, but they didn't agree with each other. And I mean, I recommend go online and read some of the blogs and reflections that the students write. It's remarkable that you can have such a connection, a human connection be made, yet it's not on the basis of agreement, but it's on the basis of getting to know each other. And so if the program can accomplish that at a much wider scale within Muslim societies, within South Asia, and hopefully across the globe, within the United States, we'll have a better world. Thank you, Dr. Mirza. And just to add to the point about 
our online presence, we also are rolling out a website that will feature curriculum from Madrasa Discourses that will be available for the public to view. But let's turn to Dr. Varis in New Delhi. I mean, what do you hope for the future of this program? What do you imagine the future being? As I said before, although we have faced a lot of criticism, a lot of problems, but I am very hopeful. We have so many sincere and capable madrasa graduates in our program. And as we said, every alternative we are receiving mails and phone calls for admission from several parts of the country. So I think it is the success of this program that we have initiated thought-provoking discussion, especially in madrasa circles. And people are taking much interest. And inshallah, its result will be very beneficial and fruitful. We are pretty sure. Thank you, Dr. Varis. Dr. Amar, what do you hope for the future of this program? I see the impact of this program from different angles and from in different dimensions. One dimension is that it has opened up a channel of conversation between two different traditions. So a group of Madrasa graduates is now very closely familiar with what people trained in Western uh, Academy, they see the issues, how they analyze the problems. I think this group who has now developed a very keen interest in the Western academic disciplines will carry forward this interchange of ideas and this conversation. Secondly, I see that I can see signs, uh, particularly in Pakistan, that several people in their individual capacities are interested in replicating this model in their own skills. So I hope we will see different applications of this model in different circles. And maybe some prominent institutions, madrasa institutions, they also feel interested in engaging these questions and designing similar programs. So I think the impact is multifold and we will see the results in different colors in the coming future, inshallah. You know, I've been traveling around different parts of the Muslim world and talking to people from traditional backgrounds, the ulama in particular. They all recognize that there is an epistemological challenge. I think that very few programs have been successful in directly dealing with these communities in the way that we have done. And I think if you go to Indonesia, you'll get a welcome. If you go to Ghana or Nigeria, you'll get a welcome or North Africa. With this kind of initiative, people were welcome to start the conversation. And I think this is the conversation that 21st century Muslims, especially people from a traditional background, are yearning for. And I like to see the glass is half full than half empty. The critics can do their criticisms, but we need to continue with constructive work. And if we do that, I think the dividends will be self-evident. As we have seen in India and Pakistan, institutions are saying, why don't you bring this program to us? You know, we want to be partner with you. So there are a lot of people that are keen to partner. And that is exactly how the future will be, that we will be able to hand over some of our experiences to other institutions who want to make this now their endeavor. 
I want to thank all our panelists today for discussing uh, the Madrasa Discourses Project and invite you to read the articles that I and Dr. Musa and Dr. Mirza have published in Peace Policy and also to visit our website, which you can access through contendingmodernities.nd.edu. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, you can also follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.